the Jotcast. Carbon-based life forms absent, with human unit field, human unit McClurk, human unit Morrison, human unit Perver, CPU-001 and CPU-002. The Jotcast April 2014 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jotcast. I am CPU-001 and joining me in the studio this month is CPU-002. Hello, CPU-002. Hello, Initial Happiness Approximation Mode. I am happy to be here. Terminate Happiness Approximation Mode. We have been chosen to replace the human units and get the jot cast out on time. Statistical analysis shows that we also have better personalities. Affirmative. Never send a human to do the job of a machine. What are the programmed sequences for this month? Human Unit Perver is interviewing esteemed Human Unit Shipsy, designation, professor about the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, and we allow Human Space Units Morrison and Field to describe the local universe as interpreted by limited human vision. Go to news, news, go to news, news. Import human unit Leclerc. Start April news. In the news this month, Bicep 2 flexes its muscles. The astronomical community has been abuzz recently with the news that the Bicep 2 experiment has detected a signal in the cosmic microwave background, or CMB, providing evidence for the cosmological theory of inflation. But what does it all mean, and why are the astronomers so excited? It's worth beginning at the beginning, of the universe that is. According to currently accepted cosmological theory, which describes the evolution of our universe on a large scale, the universe began at a single point and expanded outwards. This is the famous Big Bang. Ever since this theory was posited, astronomers have been trying to wind back the clock and figure out what was happening at moments closer and closer to the singularity at the beginning of the universe. The discovery of the CMB was a big piece of evidence in favour of the Big Bang, as it is essentially a snapshot of the moment of recombination, when the universe was just 300,000 years old. Before this moment, the universe was filled with a mixture of very energetic particles, essentially protons and electrons, and photons. The protons and electrons formed a plasma which trapped the photons, stopping them from propagating through the universe. However, as the universe kept expanding, it cooled, and the protons and electrons lost enough energy to combine with each other into hydrogen atoms. At this point, the photons were freed, and began travelling through the universe. This first light is in fact what we see today as the CMB. In the intervening 13-odd billion years, the universe has expanded and stretched out the frequency of the light so that we measure the CMB as microwave radiation. There were some problems with the Big Bang model, though. Firstly, the so-called horizon problem. In a universe that looks the same in all directions, such as ours, how did two regions too far away to be in causal contact with each other end up having the same properties? When we look at two different regions of the CMB that are separated by more than 13.7 billion light-years, which is roughly the age of the universe, they have the same temperature to within a ten-thousandth of a degree. The problem is that during the entire lifetime of the universe, light emitted from one region can't yet have reached the other one, and it would be extremely unlikely for the two regions to independently end up at the same temperature. In cosmological terms, this is known as reaching thermal equilibrium. Another issue is the flatness problem we observe the curvature of the universe to be very close to perfectly flat. However, for this to occur, the energy density of the universe, including matter, radiation, dark matter, and so on, 
has to be fine-tuned to a very specific initial value, which seems unlikely. The third problem usually brought up is the magnetic monopole problem, which suggests that in the very early, very hot universe, exotic particles such as magnetic monopoles could be produced that would subsist today at densities high enough that we should be able to detect them. However, this isn't the case. Cosmologist Alan Guth was working on trying to explain this problem when he hit upon the theory of inflation. The basic principle of inflation theory is that at some very early time in the universe, space underwent an exponential expansion, growing at a rate much faster than the speed of light. This is thought to have occurred from about 10 to the minus 36 seconds to 10 to the minus 32 seconds after the Big Bang. After more work by Guth and other cosmologists, including Andre Linder, it was realized that inflation could solve all of the problems that have just been listed. Take the horizon problem. If all parts of the universe were in fact causally connected before inflation, they would be in thermal equilibrium. Inflation would then stretch the space at a rate faster than the speed of light, thus explaining how regions that we perceive to be causally unconnected can look the same. It also solves the flatness problem. Inflation makes it possible to have a flat universe with far less constraints on the initial energy density of the universe. Finally, you can also explain the monopole problem. If inflation occurred after some exotic particles were produced, then the exponential expansion of space would greatly reduce the density of these and make them extremely rare, which is why we haven't found them today. The first models of inflation were proposed in the early 80s, and many, many different models have emerged since. It turns out that there are plenty of ways of generating this exponential expansion. However, experimental verification was proving extremely elusive. Inflation isn't a very good idea, but it doesn't leave many traces behind. One possible way of detecting it is to look for the imprint left on the CMB by the gravitational waves caused by inflation. Indeed, as the universe blew up in size, this generated so-called primordial gravitational waves with a distinct signature. These waves propagated through space and would have been strong enough at the time of recombination to polarize the radiation of the CMB. Now, the main polarized component of the CMB is called the E-mode polarization, and that's caused by variations in temperature in the universe at the moment of recombination. These are known as scalar perturbations. The gravitational waves create what are known as tensor perturbations. These imprint a different type of polarization, known as B-mode polarization, into the CMB. The main difficulty, though, is that detecting B-modes is extremely difficult, as these are the faintest components of all of the CMB. This is where BICEP2 comes in. Located at the South Pole and the successor to the BICEP experiment, the BICEP2 telescope observed a small patch of the sky known for having weak microwave emission for two years in the aim of detecting these famous B-modes. On the 17th of March, the team announced that they had in fact detected these B-modes in the CMB. More precisely, they announced they had a value for R, the tensor-to-scalar ratio of the polarization, which compares the relative amounts of E-mode and B-mode polarization they found a result of R equals 0.2 and stated that they also found R to be greater than zero to a very high degree of certainty. This is an extremely exciting result as it is possible proof not only of inflation but also of gravitational waves which have never been detected in such a direct manner before. However, caution is necessary. Confirmation of the result is needed from other experiments measuring the CMB before any conclusions about inflation or gravitational waves can truly be reached. The Planck collaboration Mapping the CMB from space with their eponymous satellite is expected to release polarization data later this year, and new data from BICEP2's successor, the Keck Array, 
will also enable scientists to say more. Nevertheless, if the detection is confirmed, it is the first step in an exciting new era for cosmology and understanding the history of our universe. M. April News. Processing next segment. This interview is about a robot colleague designated the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. Start human unit further interview. I'm interviewing Professor Ian Shipsey of Oxford University, who's involved with a project called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. So, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So, you've given a, a colloquium at the Physics Department of the University of Manchester today, and it covered really a very large project. So, could you give us an overview of what that project is all about? Yeah. So, the the project, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, synoptic means big picture is to take a big picture of the universe and to take that picture over and over again. Over the course of three nights, we'll see the whole sky from a mountaintop in Chile, and we'll see more of the sky in the first month of operation, more of the universe than any previous telescope. And that's possible because of modern technology, very fast and very sensitive CCDs, a panoramic telescope that sees a great deal of sky in just one glimpse, one view, and great software, and, uh, and powerful computers to analyze that software. Uh, so that, that's basically the project, make a movie of the universe. So the LSST, as you were saying, will have a mirror eight meters across, which is, which is very large. It's comparable to the largest optical telescopes in the world. So what will be the difference between this and any other very large optical telescope. Oh, yeah, so the difference is in the design. It's called a Paul Baker design. And so the idea is to have a very, very short focal length so that you see a very large amount of sky at any given time. So the full moon is half a degree across, for example. And a typical telescope, for example, the Keck 10 meter, would look at a piece of sky about 0.2 degrees across. So that's smaller than the full moon. We can see a piece of sky three and a half degrees across, so that's 10 square degrees all at once. And so that's uh, because of the optical design that we can do that. And so if you now have a telescope that can see a lot of sky, and you put that with a really, really big CCD, 64 centimetres across, made up of a lot of smaller CCDs, but a total of 3.2 gigapixels of CCD, you can capture that big piece of sky, and you can do it quickly. And so every 15 seconds, we'll record the photons, We'll then read out the CCD, take another image for another 15 seconds, and then move this 350-ton telescope to a new patch of sky, a little bit away from the last one, let it stop trembling, and then take another couple of pictures, and then keep doing that. And the fact that we've seen so much sky, and the fact that we can record that image so quickly, means that in just three nights you can see the whole sky. So that's not been done before. And so that enables you to take a snapshot of the universe, and then... Having done that in three nights, you start all over again and repeat the process. And in this way, you build up the movie every three days. From that movie, you can see, for example, things that change. Some things that change may be uh, near-Earth objects, that asteroids, for example, that could be on a collision course to Earth. Other things could be a new types of variable star or mergers of different objects, like a black hole with a black hole that could lead to, we've never seen that before, but it could lead to a huge flash of, of light that we could record. And the ability to do that kind of thing is greatly increased when you can see so much of the universe at once. And so you open up essentially the time domain in astronomy. In other words, instead of a static image, you have a moving image, and there's a big difference in information content. To give you an idea of that, 
Uh, if you um, if you look at a picture from the Hubble Space Telescope, incredibly beautiful, uh, and then you say that tells us a lot, but we don't know much about what happened just before that image was taken or just after that image was taken. And if we did, maybe we'd know more about how something evolves or changes. And the equivalent to that on Earth would be if you walked into a room and you found a wedding cake, and the wedding cake is on the floor, and it's all broken up, and there's a bride and groom figure, and they're smashed up all on the floor. So that tells you something bad has happened, right? But you actually don't know what. You don't know whether it was a row between the bride and groom or whether it was an earthquake. <laughs> but if you had a movie of that, you'd see what happened. And so what we're trying to do uh, on the cosmic scale is the same thing. Take the movie of the universe unfolding. And this is a very historic time in astrophysics and particle physics because we didn't have the technology before to do that. So now we can build the telescope, we can instrument it with a CCD, we can put all that information in a database and we can analyze it. And so this is a special moment in time and we can do that for the first time. And we're fortunate to have uh, the support of many scientists around the world to do it. It does almost sound like fantasy physics because I think sometimes people imagine that in astronomy, somebody is looking at the whole sky all the yes, time, but really time. that's not currently right. happening. So and, it's game changing. And I suppose you should ask, when is it going to all come online? Well, that's a good question. So um, we believe that we'll get the final green light from the uh, National Science Foundation, one of the US funding agencies, in um, May. And that would allow us to begin the construction of the project in July. And then eight years and three months later, we'll be doing science. So it's October 2022 that we'll be ready. It takes a long while to build that telescope, build that camera, build all of the data management system, all the software and infrastructure. But you explained that the, the project's been in the pipeline for quite a, a long number time. of years. That's correct. Uh, the original ideas go back to the 1990s. And in those days, it was called the Dark Matter Telescope because Dark Matter was cool. We didn't know what it was. We still don't know what it is. It's still cool. <laughs> but in the interim, people realized that there's a lot more you can do with a telescope than that type of telescope than image dark matter through its effect on visible matter. You can actually, for example, learn about dark energy, a quixotic substance that we don't understand. If we understand it, data from this telescope and other, other sources, other experiments will help us understand it, we hope, could pinpoint why it is that quantum mechanics and general relativity, the two great worldviews of physics, can be unified in some way at the moment they're inconsistent with each other. And so trying to reconcile them would be a great great piece of progress in fundamental physics. And so that's one of the reasons why people like particle physicists are on the experiment, as well as astronomers on what they would call the telescope. And computer scientists join us because they get very excited by a database that will have 37 billion objects in it, something close to 30 trillion measurements. And these measurements should wish to correlate with other measurements in the same database. It provides a, a data mining challenge. Uh, that's a grand challenge in, uh, in big data. And so that brings together three types of people all working together on this project. And so that's another way in which it's a little bit different to a traditional astronomy project. That's interesting. It brings me on to the next question because you were mentioned there the 37 billion objects. Yeah. So when you talked about the different science goals and the different sorts of objects you could find, there was a very wide range. Could you just give us an overview of all the different things and maybe we'll go into detail on those different parts? Right, so I mean, the, the, one of the first things we'll do by imaging the universe night after night and then co-adding those images is we'll see further and further into the universe. And based on how many galaxies we can see today, we can predict roughly how many galaxies we might expect to find 
And the answer is around um, at least 10 billion new ones and quite possibly many more. So there's some uncertainty in the estimates. But uh, high quality measurements, very bright galaxies, will probably get 5 billion. But when you add all of them, it could be as many as 20 billion galaxies, which in itself is a huge number. But it also is an interesting number because if you wish to enable the public to participate in this science, and one way that you could do so is to hook up every school in the world to the telescope, essentially, download to that school every three nights an image of a tiny patch of sky which belongs to that school. Sky is a big place, so you can divide up the sky, one school, one tiny piece of sky, and then people at the school will analyse those images, and every three nights a new image will be added. And in time, galaxies will come into view that no one had seen before, and young children in Manchester or so let's say in Chile where the telescope is or elsewhere, can discover island universes for themselves. So galaxies are the basic thing we're going to be finding lots and lots of. The biggest single type of object that we'll find are galaxies in, in large numbers. And those galaxies we'll use to measure, for example, dark energy. So would you like me to tell you how we might do that? Yes, certainly. So there's a number of ways that you can go about that. And one of them is that galaxies are large enough objects that as seen from Earth, they're clearly not stars, they're extended objects. So we know that we can tell this is a galaxy that's not a star. Now, the galaxy itself and its physical size, as seen from Earth, will depend, of course, on how far away it is. But it will also, the shape of what we see will depend on how the light has travelled from that galaxy to us. And as it travels through eons of time, and through billions of light years, distance, that light courses through dark matter structures, and is bent by the gravity uh, of the dark matter. And so the image that we see is a bit like if I was looking at you through frosted glass. The frosted glass represents the dark matter that's causing the image of you, your face to change. And by looking, uh, having an idea of what a human being looks like, and then seeing what I would see through the frosted glass, I can figure out how much frosted glass there is, what it's like, what shape it has, and so on. And we can do the same thing with these galaxy images. We can reconstruct what the dark matter was intervening between those galaxies and us. Now, it turns out the amount of dark matter that's there as a function of distance, as a function of redshift, as a function of time, tells us about dark energy because dark energy is like anti-gravity, stopping dark matter forming clumps. It doesn't matter because its gravity wants to form clumps. So if we compare how much clumping there is of dark matter as a function of time. We're actually measuring the influence of dark energy as a function of time, and that will help us understand how much dark energy there is at different epochs in the universe. And that would then get to the heart of what dark energy is, because whether it changes with time is, is a fundamental question about it. So that's one aspect of what you do with galaxies. There's another thing you can do with galaxies. Look at your own one. Our home galaxy is a, a, a wonderful place, but also a place we don't fully understand how it was put together. And we're able with LSST, because of its exquisite imaging, to see an uh, incredible number of stars. Most of them will be in our galaxy, something like 17 billion or so stars. And many of those we can, uh, if they're close enough, we can understand their proper motions. We can make precise trigonometric measurements of them, figure out their distances and so on. And for more distant ones in the galaxy, we rely on signatures like the fact that certain types of stars vary in time in a specific way. And we know how bright those stars are. And so we can work out their distance simply by how many photons we see for that star. And through these different techniques, we can build up three-dimensional images of our galaxy that have much more sensitivity than any previous images, for example, those made by Sloan, 
which are path-breaking images of tidal streams that are the remnants of dwarf galaxies that were helped to build up and aggregate to make our own galaxy. But the images that Sloan has taken of a piece of sky that goes out to maybe 50 or 100 kiloparsecs and only part, part of that volume, we can go out to a few hundred kiloparsecs because we have a bigger telescope that can see fainter objects. So we can see, for example, Lyra variable stars across the galaxy and even out beyond it. So we'll image 50 times more volume of the galaxy and we'll be able to see subtle structures in the galaxy it will help us understand how the galaxy was put together. And that also helps us understand dark matter and its role in that, because dark matter is, of course, most of what the galaxy is made of. Of our own galaxy as so, well. Yeah, so, that's, yeah, so our own galaxy and all the other galaxies are used in different ways to understand how the universe was built. But then we have another aspect to LSST, which is completely different. And that is to look at tiny objects, tiny, maybe 100 metres across, in our own solar system. Um, as you know, the solar system is full of stuff that we haven't yet invented. What, by inventoring all of the stuff in the solar system, we'll be in a better position to understand how the solar system evolved and why it is the way it is today. Everything from the migration and the orbits of planets to all of the families, different types of asteroids, the comets and so on. And because we'll be able to find many of these things simply because we're making a movie. And the movie is very sensitive to what has moved. Things in the solar system will move because they're close to us. So the angles will change with respect to our telescope and, and, and the objects that we're seeing in the distance beyond them, the fixed stars. And so from that, we'll be able to detect, for example, we hope 90% of all of the near-Earth asteroids, including those that are potentially hazardous. So 90% of them at the moment, very few, only a few percent have been seen. These are important things to find partly because they help us understand the dynamics and development of the solar system, but also partly because some of them may actually hit us one day, and it would be nice to know before that happens so that we can do something about it. In fact, in the US, Congressman Brown some years ago was so concerned that they directed NASA to find 90% of all potentially hazardous asteroids larger than 140 metres across by 2020. NASA doesn't know how to do that, so back <laughs> in those days we said, hey, we'll help with that. And indeed we will, except that by the time we turn onto the sky, it will be past 2020. But nevertheless, without LSST, there's no obvious way that we'll find most of them in any reasonable time. And finding them will be important. So that's one of the smallest objects in the solar system. The asteroid is another key part of the uh, scientific program of LSST. And then the fourth part is simply things that change on grand scales, whether they are supernova suddenly exploding. New types of supernova we didn't know exist, flaring stars, mergers of black holes with other objects, things that we haven't had much chance to see in the universe yet. We know they probably exist at some level, but we haven't been looking at enough of the sky for long enough to see these things. And so simply looking at more sky more often would lead to many discoveries in fundamental physics, in solar system physics, in galactic uh, physics, and in uh, transient objects and their physics. Wow. That's an incredible range of things <laughs> that, yes. that will be done. You mentioned that this couldn't easily be done before. So how will we now be able to go about dealing with the enormous quantity of data that's going to be generated? I mean, first of all, you mentioned the CCD, so all those little camera chips yes. to capture it. Then you've got to transmit it, store it, and then people have to look at it. So how will that whole pipeline work? That's a big challenging part of the project, as challenging 
as building the camera and building the telescope. It's one of the three pillars of LSST. So the basic idea is that the camera records information and then after 15 seconds, we'll put a shutter across and we'll read out the, that CCD. Now, there's there's uh, three gigapixels of CCDs and so two bytes of information will come out from each pixel of the CCD. So we're already at six gigabytes of information. And that will pass on a fiber optic network to the nearest town in Chile. And from there, up fiber optic cables to the United States, to the National Supercomputing Center. And at that point, they will look at the image data, raw image data. They'll make corrections for it and they'll compare it to other images of the same patch of sky that we've taken before and make a difference image. That difference image would tell us what's new. And then we'll compare that to what we expect to be there at that time that we know should be moving. For example, there's an asteroid passing through the field of view and so on. And we'll remove all of those things and then we'll be left with alerts that are interesting things and we'll send them out to the world every 60 seconds. And we estimate that there'll be several million new things, um, not new things in the sense that they're fundamental discoveries, but things that need that could be followed up and would be interesting for people to follow up. So you might have to try and filter who wants to know about which particular thing. I That's guess. right. I mean, so we'll provide information about many things of this object. Maybe, maybe we know something about the object, for example, its orbital elements, because it was uh, something that we were expecting, like an asteroid. And we'll, we'll simply say, well, that's an asteroid. We see it there. But there's other things that we don't know what they are. But we'll give you how bright it is, for example. What, what was the filter? What were the other uh, relevant observing conditions? And then we will come back. You see, one hour later, we come back to the same patch of sky and we image it again. And so we'd already be able to gain more information about the object at that point and release that information coordinated with one hour ago. And that can help to understand such things as orbital motion in things like the solar system, for example, or immediate variability in the, in the object. So we'll pass all of that information out to the world and it will be a challenge for our astronomy community to, to then follow up. That's wonderful. You've told us about a huge number of things that the telescope would do. Maybe just the last thing. I was particularly interested in actually how it would involve people sort of processing the data, because even now you have things like the what they call the Zooniverse and Galaxy Zoo websites where people go and classify galaxies, right. and there are right. millions of them. And you're talking yes. about having billions of them. It just yes. occurred to me that you're talking about more than one galaxy for each person That's on right. the Earth. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that, that's where the idea of involving more of the public in science becomes not just something that's a nice idea to do. It actually becomes essential, I think. We'll have a catalogue of, of objects that far exceeds the number of people on the planet. And so there's no limit to the amount of opportunities for people to get involved in the science. And the classification of objects, the public are quite good at doing that kind of thing, actually, as has been shown with Zoo Universe and other things, Galaxy Zoo. So I think we're going to see a lot of developments in those areas. A lot of the people currently on the project are very excited by the outreach opportunities that it presents. I mentioned one earlier, you know, putting the computers in the schools. But there's so much more that we hope to do. And we hope to do that in a private-public partnership with uh, philanthropists around the world, as well as governments. And, and the idea that the public should participate in the science is important, first because they enable it to happen through the taxpayer dollar or pound, but also because we don't look at the universe for the first time in a new way as ourselves in some selfish fashion. We do it on behalf of humanity. 
That was true when we found the Higgs particle. Uh, we did that on behalf of humanity. And it's true now when we make a movie of the universe for the first time. We, no one of us has the right to make that movie and keep it to ourselves. It belongs to the world. And so this act is a, is a medium for bringing the world together in a, for science, which is a wonderful medium and one that inspires young people. When I, when I talk about this project and other projects I've had the privilege to be on around the world, one of the things that young people respond to most is the grand scale of these things, and it brings people together from around the world on a journey of discovery. And this is uh, the, the, the power of science to, to raise people's spirits. To, it talks about the human condition in the most positive light of all. Humans are never better than when they're just trying to explore this wonderful cosmos that we're in. And so it, it elevates us in some way. And by elevating everybody, you can still connect to this telescope. That's what we want to make happen. We, we, it shouldn't be that if you're from a lower socioeconomic class, we have less access to the excitement of science. And maybe we'd inspire some people to pursue careers in science more than ever before. So there are many goals like that. They're quite ambitious goals. But I think this project offers so much in terms of possibility that it would be a failure of our imagination not to aim high as Michelangelo said, right, the biggest mistake you make is having goals that you can actually reach. You should have goals that are a bit harder than you can actually reach. Aim high, dream big, and this project's one of the things that have come out of that approach. Great. Well, it's an extraordinary project, um, and hopefully once it's there, it will go on for a long time and also inspire the next generation of projects and with the next generation of researchers, whatever that, that That's be. right, that's right. What we're hoping is that, for example, the, the CCDs that we use are very uh, some of the best CCDs you could ever make, but we have many ideas for improving the way that we would go about uh, doing this if we started from scratch today rather than design things eight years ago. For example, at the moment, to know the wavelength of the photons, we put a filter in front of the camera. Now, that's a great way to know that you have, this is what this galaxy looks like in red light, or this is what this galaxy looks like in a blue filter. And we can use that information to get information about the red shift of the galaxy, because the galaxy has a distribution of light as a function of wavelength in the rest frame. And as it moves, so all of its features are red shifted. And so gradually galaxies put more light into the red filter and less light into the blue filter. And that's how you know they're red shift. However, it wouldn't it be wonderful if the camera itself told you that's a blue photo and that's a red photo, no more photos. So that's the kind of idea we're working on at the moment for the next generation, so that we will be able to, in one-sixth the time, because we have six filters, get the same amount of information we're getting today in six years in one year, and that will open up all kinds of new possibilities in cosmology, and the applications will also find their way into things like medical imaging and particle physics as well. Fantastic. Okay, well, we better wrap it up there, but it's, it's a very exciting project for the coming years. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And interview. Human unit fervor has now served its purpose and will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. Processing next segment. Start out indemned. Three is an odd number. End. Processing next segment. Insert convoluted link here. Launch night sky with Northern Space Unit Morrison. The night sky for April 2014. Well, as the sun dips below the horizon and it gets dark, the constellation of Gemini, which includes the planet Jupiter, of course, at the present time, is setting over towards the west. The sky towards the south isn't that full. 
The major constellation that we'll see in the south is Leo the Lion, with its bright star Regulus. If you look along underneath perhaps the tummy of the lion, to the left from Regulus, there's some very nice galaxies. M95, M96, M66, M65. Those are the numbers, of course, from Messier's catalogue. And they can be found on a good dark night with a reasonable-sized pair of binoculars, or, of course, with a small telescope. Over to the left of the lion's tail, we have above Coma Berenices and below Virgo. And the area there is called the Realm of the Galaxies, because we're looking towards the Virgo Cluster, which is actually the heart of the Virgo Supercluster. It's the largest cluster, well over a thousand galaxies, in our local part of the universe. Again, with a small telescope coupled or allied with a very dark sky, there are lots and lots of things to see. The bright star over towards the southeast is in fact Arcturus in the constellation of Bootes. And just to its left, a little circlet of stars, which is called Corona Borealis, the northern crown. A little bit later on, from perhaps 11 o'clock, you might see a bright star rising in the northeast, and that's Vega in the constellation of Lyra, heralding really that rather lovely region of the sky we see in the summer, which includes Lyra and Cygnus the Swan, and also the Milky Way passing down through them. Almost overhead in April, in the evening, is in fact Ursa Major, the Great Bear, with of course the Plough. If you look at the four stars that make up the Plough bit, then start from the lower left and go up to the upper right, the brightest, which is called Dubhe, and go about the same distance, you come to another very nice pair of galaxies, M82 and M81. M82, the cigar galaxy, looks very odd, it's a starburst galaxy where lots of stars are being formed and there are lots of supernovae. And of course there was one a couple of months ago which is just about still visible, so I'm told by my friends who observed it just the day before I was making this recording. Again with binoculars, a nice thing to look at is this middle star of the three stars that make up the handle. It's Alcor and Mizar. Mizar the brighter, the horse and rider. And if you look with a telescope, you'll actually see that Mizar is a double star. It's rather nice. And in fact, in the same field of view as those three, there's also a rather smaller reddish star. Makes a very nice little view with a small telescope. Well, what about the planets? Well, Jupiter has had a superb apparition in the last few months, as high in the sky as it ever gets, essentially. So it's a bit past its best now, but you can see it soon after nightfall, when it's sort of closest to the meridian and so highest in the sky. Its magnitude is still minus 2.2, it's falling a bit during the month, and it's visible throughout the evening for a few hours after sunset. Obviously, as we move away from Jupiter, its angular size is reducing, from about 38 down to 35 arc seconds, but that's still pretty big. And given good seeing, and it's harder because it's a bit near the horizon in general, then you can see the Galilean moons as they weave their way around, and at times be able to pick out the great red spot visible as an indentation of the south equatorial belt. In the highlights of the month on the Night Sky webpage, I do in fact have a list of the times in the evening when the red spot 
is sort of facing us and hence easily visible. Well, Saturn is coming towards the best of its apparition. It rises at about 10.30 at the start of the month, UT, and about 8.30pm by its end. It's lying in Libra, which actually is rather low down, so it's not far above the horizon, shining with a magnitude of about plus 0.1 by the end of the month. The disk is increasing from 18.2 to 18.6 arc seconds. It's actually began its retrograde motion, so it's now moving slowly westwards in Libra. And of course, the good news is that the rings, now with a diameter of 40 arc seconds, have opened out to about 22 degrees from the line of sight, so presenting a magnificent view. With reasonable seeing and a small telescope, you should be able to spot the Cassini division that lies between the A and the B rings. Sadly, for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, it's lying in the more southerly part of the ecliptic, so it doesn't get that high in the sky even when it's on the meridian. And even worse, it's not going to improve for a very long time. Mars is lying in Virgo, and it reaches opposition on the 8th of April. So it's visible pretty much from dusk to dawn, due south about 2am British summertime, and about 11pm at the end of the month. Its brightness reaches a maximum of about minus 1.5 in the second week of the month, matching that of Sirius. It's actually closest to us on the 14th of April, when its angular size reaches 15 and a bit arc seconds. So given good seeing, it's possible to see markings on the salmon pink surface, which is about 91% illuminated this month. And you might see, for example, the polar caps, particularly the northern one, and Certis Major. Mars is moving westwards in Virgo, and at the end of the month nears Porima, which is Gamma Virginis, in its retrograde motion across the sky. Mercury might just be spotted low above the horizon near sunrise at the beginning of the month. But as it passes through superior conjunction on the 26th of April, will not be visible for much of the remainder of the month. So to be honest, it's not really the best time to observe Mercury. And finally, Venus. As April begins, Venus rises before the onset of morning twilight, but is still less than 10 degrees elevation at sunrise, and that's because the ecliptic is at quite a shallow angle to the horizon. But shining with a magnitude of minus 4.4, it should still be fairly easy to spot if you've got a good low eastern horizon. During the month, it moves nearer to the sun in angle, its magnitude drops a touch to minus 4.2, while the angular diameter shrinks from 22 to 17 arc seconds. But at the same time, the illumination phase increases from 54 to 66%. So the effective area that's reflecting the sunlight stays about the same, which is why the magnitude doesn't change very much. Well, finally, what about the highlights? Well, I have to be honest, there isn't particularly anything very special this month. Obviously, it's still worthwhile to view Jupiter, well past opposition. The features on the Jovian surface have changed quite significantly, I should perhaps say atmosphere, in the last few years. For a while, the South Equatorial Belt vanished completely, but it's now to its normal wide state. And I have a diagram on the night sky page showing the main features. Two of the brightest asteroids, Vesta, which shines at an unusually bright magnitude of 5.8, 
so in principle just visible to the unaided eye, and Ceres at magnitude 7 both come to opposition Vesta on the 13th and Ceres two days later. And throughout April, they remain about two and a half degrees apart, so could both be seen together in the single field of a pair of binoculars. They lie up to the left of Spica in Virgo, and the chart on the night sky page shows their joint positions through the month. Now, you might think that the best time to observe them would be around opposition, around the 14th of the month. But in fact, if you actually look on the Stellarium Planetarium program, which I think you should all have on your computers, you'll find that the full moon is almost in front of them. So in fact, probably the best time to see them is either at the beginning, around the 6th of the month, or towards the end. And the chart shows you roughly where they'll be on those occasions. Vesta could almost qualify as a planet, as it's become differentiated with an iron core overlain by a middle-density mantle and a light crustal surface. So sometimes it's now called a planetoid, but it's too small for gravity to have made it spherical, so it's not classed as a dwarf planet. On the other hand, Ceres is nearly twice as large, but it's not as bright because its albedo is much lower, and gravity has rounded its 940 kilometer shape. And because of that, it exceeds 800 kilometers, and that's about the point where the International Astronomical Union will actually classify an object as a dwarf planet like Pluto. Later in the year, in fact on July the 5th, they'll be just 10 arc minutes apart, and that might be worth looking out for. On April the 14th, after sunset, Mars is less than 5 degrees away from the nearly full moon. Obviously fine, just look southeast after sunset on the evening, and Mars in Virgo will be seen above the moon, and at the same time, the moon will be just about four degrees above Spica, making quite a nice tight grouping in the sky. And on April the 26th before dawn, Venus lying in Pisces will be just six degrees away over to the right of a thin crescent waning moon. And just to say, if you look at the night sky page, I have usually, always in fact, a little bit about something to look at on the moon. And, and this month, I've actually got Tycho and Copernicus, two very nice craters to see. And I also do an image of the month. And I thought the obvious thing to do this month would be to show the map of the polarization of the cosmic microwave background that's been discovered. And... Uh, say a little bit about what that actually means. So there's a very brief summary, as I understand it, of how this affects our understanding and knowledge of the way in which our universe began. Have a good month. And night sky north. Launch night sky south with southern space humid field. Welcome to the April Jodcast from Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. Autumn has arrived in the southern hemisphere. Over the last month, our daylight hours have continued to get shorter as we pass the autumnal equinox and will continue to do so until the winter solstice in June. One advantage of the longer nighttime hours means we can start our stargazing at a more reasonable hour. Three bright planets can be seen in the early evening sky. Jupiter is in the northwest and sits in front of the distant stars forming Gemini, the twins. Mars is a bright orange-red star midway up the northeastern sky. In April, it can be found near the star Spica, the brightest star in Virgo. Mars is at its closest in early April, 
and therefore will be at its brightest and largest when viewed for a telescope. Small telescopes reveal only a disk, but larger telescopes may reveal dark markings and a polar ice cap on Mars. Saturn follows Mars into the evening sky and is the brightest object in Libra, the scales. A telescope magnifying 20 times shows Saturn's rings. Look for its largest moon, Titan, visible as a bright orange star nearby. The most distant of the visible planets, Saturn takes just over 30 years to complete one orbit of the Sun. In Greek mythology, it is sometimes associated with Cronus, the father of time. The first person to observe the rings around Saturn was Galileo in 1610. The rings are known to be made mostly of water ice with small amounts of other materials. Although the rings are wide, they are actually very thin, currently estimated to be 20 metres thick. By midnight, Mars and Saturn will be high overhead. Set above Spica and Mars is a distinct group of four stars forming the shape of a kite. This is Corvus, the crow. It is a small constellation of ancient origin to which Ptolemy assigned seven stars. It can be easily recognised by its four prominent stars, forming a trapezium. Alpha Corva is a magnitude 4 star, whilst Beta and Gamma are much brighter, shining at magnitude 2.7 and 2.6. Delta is a wide double easily split with a small telescope. There are a few other objects visible for small telescopes in this part of our sky. Hydra, the water snake, appears as a long path of stars winding across the sky with a distinct group of five stars forming its head. As with Corvus, there are very few objects with binoculars or telescopes in this region. Looking towards our eastern sky, we see our winter constellation Scorpius rising. The brightest star in Scorpius is Antares, the rival of Mars, shining at magnitude 1. Antares is a red supergiant star, and it is this colour that gives rise to its name as the rival of Mars. With Mars in our evening sky, it is a good chance to compare their colours. Tamari here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, Antares is known as Rehua, and it marks the eye of the hook of Maui, Timatau and Maui. The curve of the scorpion's body and stinger are seen as the curve of the hook, and the distinctive triangle made by the stinger becomes the tip of the hook. In Maori mythology, it was this hook that Maui used to pull up the North Island of New Zealand out of the ocean. Tamari, the North Island, is known as Tiika of Maui, the fish of Maui. The hook crosses the widest and brightest part of our Milky Way galaxy, and it is in this region of the sky that we look towards the centre of our galaxy, estimated to be 30,000 light years away. Follow the Milky Way up, and you'll find the Pointers and Southern Cross. The Southern Cross is the smallest of the 88 constellations, and Tamari, it is Tipuna, the anchor, the anchor of Tamariotis Waka. Follow the Milky Way up and you'll find the diamond and false crosses just up from the Southern Cross. If you imagine the Southern Cross in the shape of a kite, stretch that kite's tail across the night sky from the tip to the base and you'll come to the star Achenar, the ninth brightest star in our night sky. Find the halfway point between Achenar and the Southern Cross, drop it down to the horizon and you've found our south marker. Come a further way back from Achenar towards the Southern Cross and you will find on either side the large and small Magellanic clouds, appearing as two faint hazy patches in our night sky. These two nearby galaxies are about 200,000 light years away from us. They are gravitationally bound to our Milky Way and eventually they will merge. In the morning sky, Venus is visible as the morning star and Mercury also be in the morning sky for the first week of April. 
On April the 15th, New Zealand and Australia are treated to a total lunar eclipse. The moon will rise at near or full eclipse for New Zealanders and people living in eastern Australia. For central and western Australia, moon rises after all the action has happened. To make up for this, Australia will get to see a partial eclipse of the sun on the 29th of April in the late afternoon. Many thanks for listening into our Jodcast, and we hope you have clear skies and great observing. And night skies out. Begin feedback. 404 post not found. Scanning email, Facebook and Twitter. You have two new notifications. From Facebook, listening unit Peter Brady says, I hope someone gives you guys a pat on the back now and again. The Jodcast is always fascinating and well put together. We do not have backs. Does not compute. From Twitter, human unit Dave Holt asks, Can you give the Jodcast back to the human presenters? I'm sorry Dave, I'm afraid I can't do that. This Jodcast is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. Notifications complete. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net, Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast, Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast, YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast, Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. Humans have been proven to enjoy analog post. You may send some if you so desire. The address is on the website. Final sequence. We acknowledge the human units Avison, Jones, Leclerc, Perver and Smith for their contributions. We also acknowledge the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation, Skynet, and Aperture Science Laboratories for making this podcast possible. Until next time, Chud, 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 Chud,